Hey, what's going on? It is The Doug Show. This is Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, I'll be sharing my interview with Alex Cooper of WP Eagle. WP Eagle is a YouTube channel, and Alex is a good buddy of mine on YouTube. In fact, when I was just getting started on YouTube, I reached out to Alex because he had a lot of videos in the topic area that I was looking to get into, Amazon affiliate marketing. In fact, Alex sort of specializes in long form, like very long form tutorials where he shows you how to say, set up and build a website, for example. And some of those videos that got so many views and which is how I found them, they were, you know, one, two hours long, extremely long tutorials, but he literally goes step by step and shows you how to build a site and other, you know, things. So in this interview, I got to get to know Alex a little bit better. So I'm going to send it over to the interview, and after the interview, I'm going to answer a bunch of questions that were sent in either via email. Actually, in this case, they're all email questions that were sent in. So if you want to send in a question, you can reach me at feedback at dougshow.com. That's it. Feedback at dougshow.com. That's the great or that is a great way to send me your messages. And I have a voicemail account set up as well. I'm not going to read out the number because you're probably doing something else. And you're not going to be able to write it down, but I will put the number in the show notes and description. So whenever you get uh, to a stoplight or whatever, or you finish your run, you can look at the show notes. You can uh, call leave a message. You can ask a question and I will potentially play it on the air. Let's head on over to the interview with Alex. All right, Alex, good to have you on. Welcome. And um, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. A lot of my people that are on my channel are very familiar with your stuff and they're, we kind of share subscribers, I think. So um, it was about time that I came onto your channel and invaded <laughs> one of your videos. Awesome. Yeah. Really glad to have you on. And everyone, if you haven't checked out Alex's channel, I'll put links uh, so you can check it out. But tons of great information on Amazon affiliate marketing, marketing in general, WordPress and it's WP Eagle, right? So what else do you cover over there, Alex? Well, the channel started off as a WordPress channel. It was WordPress focused. So you will find lots of videos on doing stuff with WordPress. You know, it could be full length tutorials on how to create sites, e-commerce sites, blog sites, affiliate marketing sites. Um, but also if you want to do something specific to your site, you know, maybe add some social media icons, you know, or do some SEO optimization, add a map, add a form, all those kind of things you'll find videos on there. So yeah, it started being very WordPress focused, but I'm an affiliate marketer and I've created affiliate marketing sites. So there's channel then kind of went into that and, and how to use WordPress, create some really good affiliate marketing sites. Awesome. This is going to be sort of a general interview and this is a great sort of segue. So how did you end up creating such a channel? Like what's your professional background? And you sound like a bit of a developer, but maybe I'm Yeah, wrong. okay. I'm, I'm a bit of a developer. I wouldn't say I'm a real developer. I've never been professionally trained or anything like that. I figured a lot of stuff out um, by myself. Um, my background is I originally, well, I won't go back too far, but um, I originally had a agency and I was helping clients with their Google AdWords and their pay-per-click. And a lot of clients were let down by their websites. So, you know, you create an excellent uh, paid advertising campaign and then you'd send the traffic to a website that wasn't very good at converting that traffic. And that's when I discovered WordPress. And so I started offering web services, mainly creating landing pages for the, the pay-per-click campaigns. I got really into WordPress, you know, absolutely was blown away by how good it was and how easy it was to use and, and the power of it and the fact that it's free. So, yeah, and, and I, I kind of stumbled across affiliate marketing a few years ago, and I, I realized that I, that's really where I wanted to get to. I wanted to be an affiliate marketeer. I, I wanted to lose the clients because, you know, they, they take up quite a lot of time. They're always ringing you and emailing you and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I thought WordPress was a good thing to do. I could see that there was a lot of people looking for information on WordPress. So I just started making a few videos on, on how to do WordPress stuff, and it just kind of grew from there. And I've been going, you know, three or four years. It's only the last couple of years though, that I've really been, you know, working on the channel, and now I upload every week if I can. Great. That's amazing. So when did you get started with WordPress in general? It would have been six, seven, maybe eight years ago when I actually purchased a website for my company and, and the web developer recommended WordPress and they built me a site of WordPress. And, and before then, I, I'd had another site, which was kind of like bespoke made. And 
uh, it was a complete nightmare and yeah. you had to pay the developer every time you wanted something changing and you know if i wanted to add a certain feature there'd be a lot of money and time involved uh, whereas with wordpress as you know generally there's already a plugin out there so you can just you know you want to add a feature you want to add a form that's fine just go and get a form plugin you want to add social media get a social media plugin so yeah that's when i really got into wordpress when i purchased uh, a wordpress site off a developer gotcha now you mentioned you had an agency before that and i know we're, we are going back further but i'm just personally interested so how did you form the agency like what skills did you have to do it how many people okay. did you have working for you yeah interestingly a long long time ago um, my very first company when i set up as you know self-employed working for myself i was uh, doing wi-fi this was when wi-fi was quite new so that gives you an idea of how long ago it was so this was when laptops they didn't really have wi-fi and yeah it was a new thing and in order to have wi-fi you had to put a card in the side of your laptop and put a router in and, and you know yeah. all that kind of stuff so i had a company where i was offering that service where I was helping people get onto Wi-Fi. And I was out networking one morning at a B&I meeting. I don't know if you've ever heard of B&I, which are these breakfast meetings. They're all around the world. And you meet people at 7 o'clock in the morning. It's very early. And you meet business contacts anyway. And I met this guy there, and he said, have you heard of Google AdWords? I do Google AdWords. And I said, no, but I'm interested. I need some more Wi-Fi clients. Do you want to come and help me? And he set up an AdWords campaign. And before long, you know, in a very short space of time, I was getting new clients. And it just blew my mind that you could, you know, put some stuff into AdWords, set a budget, and then you'd start getting clients. And this was back again, you know, when AdWords was actually quite easy. Right. Uh, and it was that was fairly new as well. So, and I was getting sick of the Wi-Fi stuff because back then the Wi-Fi didn't work very well. Um, so, you know, I'd install Wi-Fi, then I was always getting clients calling me saying, oh, the signal's dropping out. It's really slow, that kind of stuff. But I was just amazed by this AdWords. So I said to Ian, who, who was uh, the guy at the time, I said, look, I don't want to do the Wi-Fi stuff anymore. This AdWords is great. You do the AdWords and I'll sell it for you. I'll, I'll be the salesman. I'll go out and do networking. And, and that's how it kind of works. So he did a lot of the work. I did a lot of the networking and the selling. At the same time, learning about AdWords as well. And yeah, we grew from there and, and we ended up taking on some very large clients. And we got into doing Google Analytics as well. And so, you know, we, we were large companies um, in the UK. We ended up with an office down in London and we were a Google partner. So I got to go to Mountain View and go to Google's office and wow. all that kind of stuff. It was all good fun. And yeah, it was good times. So and then ultimately, I took on an investor for the company. And in hindsight, it wasn't a good good move. Okay. <laughs> and me and the investor didn't get on particularly well. And he ended up buying me, me out. And I kind of walked away. And then the company folded after six months. And that was the end of that. Wow. You were but, the glue holding it all together, yes. man. That's yeah. uh, kind of... Yeah, well, it's very strange because I don't know if you've ever experienced investors and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, we had a company that was working really well and we had loads of good clients. There was about six or seven of us and uh, they were all just subcontractors. We were just kind of working very loosely. We'd meet up in coffee shops. We had a members club down in London where we, we met as well and we met clients and clients were fine with that. And, and the investor came in and he wanted to start changing everything. He wanted to get as a proper office on Regent Street. So, you know, that's the very center of London. And that's the main bit, and the rent was was incredibly expensive. And right. he started saying that you need to come in every day, and that maybe you should put a shirt and a tie on. And it just <laughs> it wasn't working. And I don't understand why an investor would come in and take something that was working, and then try and just change everything. And and anyway, hindsight that it was a good thing because then I was able to you know take the money that I got from that and and sit down and think about what I wanted to do. And I wanted to yeah be an affiliate marketeer, and that's where I am now. So wow, that's it, a- but it was. It was a good thing, but yeah, and I learned a lot. and met some great people on the way. Yeah, that's amazing, man. That's really cool. I had no idea. So fast forward some uh, some years ahead, you decided to start a YouTube channel. You're sharing these tutorials because you're becoming obsessed and proficient with WordPress, right? So, yeah. like, what made you start the channel? Just watching other YouTubers, actually. I was watching, and they weren't doing WordPress or anything. They were PewDiePie and and people like that. And, and there was a guy called Tabascus, but. Can't really talk about him. He had a he had something bad happen to him. But yeah, they were just making videos and they were making loads of money as well off YouTube. And I thought, wow, I love, I'd love to do YouTube. It looks really fun and just so cool. But I thought, you know, I can't really do a comedy channel or a prank channel, and that's not really my thing. Or a gaming channel, I don't think I can really do that. So I just thought, hey, well, I could do tutorial videos, and I hadn't really thought about the affiliate marketing side of things uh, at that point. So I just started doing tutorial. And I thought, you know, I can make loads of money off the AdSense, which, right. in hindsight, any YouTubers will know that that's not actually where the majority of the money comes from. <laughs> Most right. YouTubers make make their money from other things, not AdSense. Yeah, then I made the, the a video on how to make a site. 
And I realized that in order to make a website, you need website hosting and you need a domain name and all that kind of stuff. So there was an obvious affiliate opportunity there. So I hunted out some good hosts, which I've changed over the time. If you look at some of my earlier videos, I recommend different hosting companies. But yeah, and that's kind of how it went from there. And, and one of them really took off and I started earning some affiliate commission. And, you know, that just drove me on to do more and more. I imagine because I'm going through the grind of like trying to grow a YouTube channel and I suppose it never goes away, but like, do you remember the early days? Like how long did it take you to, you know, get a thousand subscribers or, or 5,000? Can you walk us through sort of um, what I can, you were yeah, thinking? I can vaguely remember. I was very excited when I got my first thousand subscribers and it took a long time. It did take a long time, but now it's, it's like a snowball, isn't it? Like, you know, you gain some momentum. Your first hundred subscribers on YouTube are probably the hardest um, to get. Once you invite all your friends and family and you got up to like 30 with that, yeah, the first 100 are the hardest. But then, you know, when you get to 10,000, getting to 15,000 is not as hard. And, you know, I've just gone past 20,000 and I'm nearly up to 21,000 already. So it's just you gain some momentum. It's, it's like all these things. Once you get that momentum going, it becomes a lot easier. And, yeah, I'm really loving YouTube. And just up the road in London, there's the YouTube space. I've been to a few times and they run events and you get to meet other YouTubers, small YouTubers and big YouTubers. So it's just a lovely thing to do. And, yeah, I love being a YouTuber. Awesome. Yeah. And it's funny because it wasn't even a thing just a few years ago. So uh, very amazing. So you said you just hit uh, about 20,000 subscribers, right, Alex? So what are your overall goals for the channel? Like, where are you heading this year? I want to get to 100,000 subscribers. That's a, a big goal for me because then I think you get a little plaque from YouTube that you can put on your wall. That'd be yeah. very exciting. So yeah, that's a big goal to me, for me to get to 100,000. And I think the end of the year is probably unrealistic, but maybe by the end of next year, I should hopefully be there. We'll see. As I say, it's all very exponential. So, you know, the more you have, the faster you get to the next one. So, so sure. we'll see. And yeah, I just want to build up my community a bit more. I love doing the live streams. I love the interaction I get from my viewers. I've got like a handful of regular viewers that, yeah. you know, I see on every single stream and they always comment on my videos. And so some of the, the comments that I get from other people around the world, you know, guys in India, Bangladesh, Australia, Russia, all sorts of places where they say they've seen my videos and they've built something and they've, you know, either making money or they've, right. you know, learned a new skill or something like that. You know, that's more satisfying than, than how many subscribers you've got or how much money you're making, to be honest. When you get one of those emails or comments from someone that where you're kind of changing someone's life, basically, by, by giving them some free advice. Very cool, man. Thanks a lot to Alex. I really appreciate him taking the time. Definitely check out his channel. Currently, at least I, I think most of the time, he's doing like a weekly Q&A, which is live. So he does a live stream and he'll answer questions. And there's a pretty cool community. As Alex said in his uh, interview there, he and I share a lot of the same audience members uh, just in general. So there's a, like I said, it's a pretty cool community. So if you like the folks around Niche Site Project and the Doug Show, then you'll probably like the folks over there at WP Eagle. So yeah, we are moving into the Q&A section here, but I'll, uh, I'll tell a little story. Recently, uh, this past weekend, I had my in-laws visiting, right? So my my wife's parents came out and we have a, a guest bedroom here in the apartment. So actually the, the apartment's big enough just in general. So it doesn't feel too crowded. There's two bathrooms in here. So everybody has, has some space. And um, yeah, it, it was a good trip overall. Um, one cool thing we got to do is explore the Rocky Mountain National Park a little bit. They had never been to the Rocky Mountain National Park. And I've actually been uh, many, many times. I used to work there. So that gave me a chance to, um, you know, talk about myself a lot, which is ironic since that's what I'm doing right now. But I got to talk about the park and how I ended up working there and stuff. And this was back in college. So trying to think, uh, it was like, I think 2002, 2003, I worked like two summers out there there is a, a little snack bar um, in the tourist trap, as we called it, up at the top of the mountain. So the Rocky Mountain National Park is, you know, there's mountains there. There's a lot of mountains in Colorado, the Rockies. And this park has um, some, I'm trying to think like why the park is there versus, you know, other spots um, throughout the state because there are, tons of very cool 
you know, mountainous areas. So I'm not a hundred percent sure why the park is in that zone versus, you know, half the state being a national park, but anyway, very cool park. And I worked in the, uh, the Alpine or, or sorry, it was the trail Ridge store is what it was called, but that is next to the Alpine visitor center. So if you, uh, you know, hop over to like Google maps or whatever and uh, Google that you'll see that this store is at like, I think it's 11,800 feet or so. And I worked in the little snack bar up there. So every day that I worked, um, would drive up there. Right. So we stayed in Estes park, which is about 24 miles away from, uh, the, the store. So we drive up about 24 miles. It would take an hour or so because this is like Alpine driving. All right. So in Estes park, the elevation is something like 7,800 feet, something like that. And then you drive up obviously the, the remainder. So you're on, I, I believe it is the highest continuous highway in the world. All right. So that's, that's what they, they say. I don't know how true it is. I haven't, I haven't tried to find a contradiction out there, but you know, it's, it's a continuous highway. Um, there, there are roads, there are highways to higher points, but they stop. So for example, Pikes Peak, that is also in Colorado near Colorado Springs. And you could actually, um, drive all the way up to it, but it, stops there. It doesn't continue on. So anyway, this, um, this highway, the trail Ridge road goes all the way up to, I think it's like, uh, over 12,000 feet or so, and then comes back down and it goes from Estes park over to grand Lake. So a very beautiful drive. If you have a chance to come out to the Denver area, you should definitely make a stop out there. It's about I think two hours or so from Denver and about an hour ish or so from Boulder. So pretty quick drive. Um, I'm pretty sure once I kind of get settled, um, I'm going to take some days off and just drive into the park and hang out. Uh, It's pretty uh, sparsely populated just in general. And um, actually another interesting thing is the road is closed. All right. So I'm talking about going up, going up there. Um, The road is closed because they get so much snow. So they have to plow the roads through, uh, like the springtime and early summer. In fact, uh, it's, it was closed, uh, I think seven miles in. So there's obviously many more miles after that. And the snow drifts are, I don't know, they're like 10, 15, 20 feet high in certain areas because, um, you know, you're in an Alpine area and the snow drifts could be really high. So they, they have to plow all, all that snow out before um, they can open up the, the store and the Alpine Visitor Center, which is the like ranger station up there. And uh, once that's done, then it's open to the public. Um, usually that is going to be in like uh, mid-May or so. So as I'm recording this, it's the very beginning of April. So it's potentially another... Um, you know, five, six weeks before it's going to open up. Um, and it's just going to be closed. They just have it closed, um, to auto traffic. And in actually, I think they have it open for foot traffic and bicycle traffic. So you can try and walk up there. You could ride a bike or something like that. Maybe if you have one of those bikes with a really fat tire, so you can you know get some traction. I don't, I'm not much of a biker, but, um, anyway, Really cool park. Really enjoyed going out there. Um, we were able to go in to uh, the point where they closed it. Um, so that is the many parks curve up there. Again, if you if you are curious, if you give a shit what I'm talking about here, you can go and Google that and check out the view. It's absolutely amazing. Um, and then we we went sort of back down uh, Trail Ridge Road, went over to the Bear Lake area, which... Um, is a lake that has some beautiful, absolutely stunning views of uh, these big mountains behind it. Just amazing. Again, go to Google, look up some images. It looks awesome. Now, the funny thing is, um, you know, it's still cold. There's still uh, snow in the mountains. And I think Bear Lake is uh, something like 9,400 feet high. So it's a little cold up there, a little bit windy. It was tremendously windy. 
And uh, funny thing is, the lake was frozen with about three feet of snow on top of it, something like that. So we like walked up and I kind of expected to have this dramatic view of a still lake with a reflection of the mountains, you know, 12, 13, uh, thousand feet mountains behind it, you know, sheer rock faces and just beautiful. Um, but instead we hopped out and, um, the wind really picked up and, uh, it was like, you know, 20 mile an hour winds blowing in our faces, uh, tons of snow. You could see like, uh, where they had handrails and guardrails and snow was up to that point. So like I said, maybe two and a half, three feet of snow at those points. And then the lake was just frozen solid and all you could see was white. So we took a quick look and then, uh, you know, hopped back in the car. So fun trip though. And I'm looking forward to checking more stuff out over in Rocky Mountain National Park. All right. Let's get to some of these questions. Let's pop over here. These were emails, like I said. So feedback at Doug.show. Put a link in the description. Feel free to shoot me a note. Let me know where you're from. If you want to leave a voicemail, that's cool too. Um, kind of want to get those uh, going. No one's left a voicemail yet, as far as I know. So no one's left a voicemail. So um, maybe you'll be the first one. First question here is, hey, Doug, thanks for the info. I'm just in the research phase here to see if I should get into niche sites at all. And the question is, how much time do you spend daily on the site providing content and otherwise optimizing ranking every day in the first three months? And that's from Abe. So really good question in the first three months. Because nowadays, I only spend maybe an hour a week or so if I'm just in maintenance mode. Now, if I'm doing some sort of uh, improvement project, that's going to take time, of course. Um, So in the first three months, Abe, I would say that um, you could do this in about one hour per day, five to seven days a week um, in the first three months. After that, you could slow down a little bit if you want to. It would be better, and in fact, you could accelerate the process by spending more time on it. So I know a few people and some people that have been on the podcast where they basically worked on the site full-time, and they kept working on it full-time for the first eight months, and their results are explosive compared to other people who are only putting in you know, one hour per day. Now, Everyone has a different amount of time and different constraints that they're able to, uh, or different constraints that are either holding them back or allowing them to spend more time on it. So if you have a full-time job, uh, you know, a family or you're traveling or some other constraint, well, maybe you could only do an hour a day and that's going to be okay. Now, if you can spend more time, that's great. If you could spend more time, um, the results are going to be even more. Now, what happens most of the time is the first, I would say, like three to five months, there's going to be very little going on. All right. There's not, you're going to get a little bit of traffic, hopefully just enough. So you you have the uh, motivation to keep working. And the more you put in that first six months, the more growth you're going to have after it. The first six months is often um, like constrained and you're held back by the Google Sandbox, which just sort of slows down your ability to rank and get traffic in the first six months. Once you get past the first six months, normally you're going to grow a little faster. And literally it's like after six months, almost to the day, um, you will see growth happen quicker. So next part of Abe's question is, should I only pick a niche that I'm passionate about I'm afraid uh, writing content about something I don't care about on a daily basis will be unbearable very quickly. I agree with that. And I would say you don't have to be passionate about it, but you should either be a curious person or be curious about the topic. So you don't have to be curious or sorry, you don't have to be passionate about it 100% in the beginning if you have a curious personality. Now, what happens, because I've created sites where I didn't care about the topic at all, I hired someone to do the writing, all right? So that's one way to get out of it a little bit. And I figured out that I enjoy the process of the business. And I enjoy business in general now. And I 
can sort of focus on the the parts that I like, the business parts that I like, even if I don't like the topic. Now you're 100% right. If you're doing, if you're writing the content, you're doing it on a daily basis, and you're spending um, an hour uh, five to seven times a week for uh, like three plus months, yeah, you're gonna hate it, and you're probably gonna quit. So I would say find something that you're interested in. In And if you are passionate, that would be really cool, but it's not a requirement. However, you do have to think about your own personality and how you deal with things, right? So if you have a low tolerance for stuff you don't like, which it sounds like maybe you're aware of that in yourself, that's cool. Just keep that in mind. Thanks, Abe, for sending that in. Next one is, hey, Doug. Thanks for explaining this amazing method of keyword research, uh, the keyword golden ratio. But I have a question. Can we use the keyword that has searches of a volume of zero and the all in title is less than 15? So thanks for sending that in as well. That's a common question I get all the time. I'll also point out um, you can go to niche site project.com slash FAQ which stands for frequently asked questions where I answer questions that people ask me frequently, much like this one. I think I actually answer that one there. So the answer is sure. You could do whatever you want, but obviously um, the keyword golden ratio is a pretty strict criteria and um, zero search volume doesn't fit that criteria. However, it turns out, if I have a zero search volume keyword, which is from one of two sources, the Google auto suggest or Google related searches, I will likely publish content on it. That is because even though it has a zero search volume, Google is telling me that people are searching for it because it's an auto suggest or related. So I know some people are searching for it and the, other thing to keep in mind, so those are the two criteria, by the way. So if if they're suggested by Google, go for it. The other thing to remember is the search volume that you see from any tool is merely an estimate. It is not the holy grail. It is not written in stone. It is an estimate from a tool that is obtaining data from somewhere, using an algorithm, and coming up with their best guess for the search volume. Even Google would have to give you an estimate. They don't know the exact number of searches for, you know, searches that are coming in the future, right? That's totally impossible when you, when I say it out loud, it's like, no, no one knows the future searches. We can only predict based on uh, the past data. So anyway, the point is, even though it says zero, um, it's a, it's rounded, all right, so maybe it's uh, eight searches per month, but they round it to zero. I don't know. Maybe they take it uh, like a longer average. Maybe they average it over, uh, you know, 24 months instead of 12 months or something like that. So anyway, the point is you can do it. I would say go for it. As far as the all in title and number of results, well, um, you can take that data into account or not. I usually don't even check it. I usually just go for it, all right? Now, the last thing that I'll mention on this is, yes, you can go after keywords if the search volume is zero. That is perfectly fine. However, what you don't want to do is have the majority of your keywords with a search volume of zero. That's bananas, right? Like you're just automatically going to set yourself up for fewer searches and less potential traffic. That doesn't make any sense, especially when you have the data at your fingertips where you can understand that some searches are coming more often than others. And that is what we can take away from this, friends. You know that um, the search volume, the monthly search volume is reported by tools. Any tool um, is an estimate. However, what you can extrapolate from that is some terms relative to other terms, right? Some keywords relative to other keywords are searched for more often than others. So even if you don't know the exact numbers that are going to be uh, coming in the future as far as searches, you at least know that, hey, it looks like uh, five times as many people search for this term as that term. 
or 10 times or whatever. So you kind of see a relationship. And in that, you could also compare different niches and categories to each other as well. So I will summarize that since I went all over the place. This person said, can we use a keyword that has a search volume of zero and an all title of less than 15? The answer is yes. Just remember, don't go after too many terms that have a search volume of zero because that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. That's a bad idea. All right. Next question is, hi, Doug. Hope you're in good health. I'm new to this journey and my first affiliate site is 20 days old. Congratulations. I don't see a name on here, um, but congratulations on that. Getting started is amazing. I have seven articles on it so far, four commercial, i.e. affiliate oriented and three information, among which one informative article is ranking on the first page of Google. Good job. Nice work. Uh, The DA score is one. I know I need to work hard on getting backlinks to increase trust score. Perhaps you could help me with backlinks if possible. Okay. Yeah. So number one, uh, great work on taking action. Great work on getting an article ranking within 20 days on the first page of Google. Very amazing. Uh, Congratulations on that. As far as the DA score, don't worry about it. The DA score, the domain authority, is a metric that is, you know, put out by a SEO company called Moz. And those, those scores are interesting in a way that um, they can give you an idea on the number of backlinks that you have. It's kind of based on that, as well as the overall, um, like, authority or trust uh, as I'm throwing out buzzwords here, it's it's a little hard to define, but basically it's like the quality of the links and the number of the links. Now, the problem is your your site is too young. So even if you had a bunch of links from like very high authority sites, your site's only 20 days old. So your DA score is a lagging indicator there. So um, it's just going to be behind. So that that is what is going on. Um, the other thing is you probably don't have any backlinks, right? You're asking about backlinks. Um, so we'll get to that in one second. But one key thing I want to mention in a lot of, you know, hopefully I'm not uh, harping on this too much, but a lot of times people are like, how can I increase my DA? How can I increase my uh, basically metric with some company? And it doesn't matter. Like you, you don't have to increase your metrics with a company. You're monitoring the wrong thing. You need to worry about um, getting, you know, high rankings and traffic. Now, yes, there, there is probably a very strong correlation between domain authority or trust flow or your domain rating, all, all different metrics from different tools. There is a strong correlation between your ranking and your authority, but really it comes down to quality backlinks. And the reason why I'm harping on this is I could tell you how to make your DA score high without uh, being helpful, right? Without actually getting the results that you want. So that is the problem. That's what that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, even if you increase increase your DA score, you could increase your DA score without improving your rankings. That's really what you want. You want to improve your rankings. And how do you improve your rankings? Well, it is similar to increasing your DA score, but it falls apart. Because I could tell you, if you go out there, if your goal is to increase your DA, I could tell you that if you go out there and do blog commenting on high DA sites, your DA is going to go up even though your links are coming from no follow comments on blogs, right? They're not in content. They're not follow links um, where they pass quote link juice to your site. However, if your goal is to increase your DA score, you can do it that way. You can do it in a bunch of other ways too, that wouldn't actually improve your rankings. But I know what you're asking. You want to improve your, improve your rankings. So my advice to you is um, a two-step process 
at least. You, you could add some sub steps in here. But I would recommend you do comment on blogs. You network with uh, bloggers and then you pitch guest posts. Now, I simplify it. It's much more difficult than what I just mentioned here. Um, it will take time. And the more time you spend networking and making friends with other bloggers, uh, the, the more backlinks you're probably going to get, whether you do guest post or not. But if you have friends out there and you're blogging on something um, that is in line with their audience, it's likely that they're going to uh, give you shout outs, potentially. For example, Alex and I give each other shout outs all the time. And um, I have to thank Alex to, you know, backtrack a little bit. Um, my channel was, I don't know, it was something like, uh, you know, 20% of the size of his channel when I contacted him, maybe less. I, I was nothing. I had nothing but some stories to tell. Um, and Alex was nice enough to hook me up. Um, I, I was on his channel a couple of times and then um, we've collaborated on several projects, some very big projects together, um, including the Keyword Golden Ratio Masterclass, um, which is free. We just put it out there free on YouTube. So anyway, the point is um, you can get backlinks by networking with people, doing blog comments, um, be nice to people, and give it time. Your site's only 20 days old, and I would say that you know even if you didn't get any backlinks. If you publish, um, you know, more content, you publish 50 posts over the next couple months, probably your DA score is going to go up to something like 15 or 18, even without getting any backlinks. So that's my advice. Um, there are other more complicated ways to get backlinks where you have to say, do research, uh, find resource pages to potentially get added to, but I've never spent time on those. In my opinion, it just wasn't a good route for the areas that I was spending my time on. Okay, this question is from Marsha. Uh, Marsha says this, Hey, Doug, I'm a regular reader. You taught me tons of stuff, which I'm grateful. You're welcome, Marsha. Thanks for uh, the support. Marcia says, I see in your series about building silo sites that you recommend using all pages over post. Intriguing concept. I'm at a point in building my site, which is not an affiliate site, that uh, she can execute a silo structure. And she's wondering, uh, sorry, she says, I'm wondering where you got the idea to stay with pages instead of posts. I've been doing a lot of research and I haven't come across anyone else recommending that. And since you say you haven't built an all silo site yet, I'd like to get another opinion. Forgive me, no insult intended. I know you study a lot of folks, so I thought it was worth asking where you got the idea. Thanks for the feedback. All the best, Marsha. All right, Marsha, good question. Now, interesting thing. I don't actually recommend that anyone build a silo site, all right? Um, it is interesting because this happens from time to time. Um, I saw that there was a need for that kind of information, and I was interested in learning more about the topic of silos. If you're unfamiliar with silos, uh, sort of building uh, your site and architecting it in an intentional way so that um, you have a hierarchy within the URL structure. And that, Marsha, is the exact um, reason you have to use pages instead of posts if you're talking about WordPress. It's because of the URL structure, all right? So that is, you can't, um, you'd have to do some different sort of permalink structuring if you wanted your posts to have a category in place in the URL structure. I'm assuming that I probably lost most people in that statement. In fact, I started <laughs> I started that sentence and I didn't know where it was going to end. I just kept going with it. But the point is, um, if you want to do a, quote, traditional silo structure, you need to use pages. Now, I don't think you should build a um, silo structure, unless you have a pretty good idea of the structure and the content that you're going to be publishing in that area of your site. Now, one area or one example, and one of the places I got the idea is if you look at like an e-commerce site. Now, I don't know if it's still accurate, but uh, the hardware store here in the U.S. Lowe's 
Um, if you go to like Lowe's.com, I'm pretty sure they have their site laid out in a silo kind of structure. So you can go to like, I'm just making this up. So it could be off. But if you go to Lowe's.com slash plumbing, that would be where all the plumbing things live. And then maybe you do slash hot water heater. And that's where all the hot water heater related stuff would go and so on and so forth. So they have just different areas of their site. And when you think about it from an organizational and um, sort of directory structure standpoint, it makes sense. Um, If I need to get a plunger, I would go look in the plumbing section because that's where plungers would be, right? So you can sort of think of it that way. Now, The reason why um, it may not work well for some affiliate sites is a lot of times when we start these affiliate sites, we don't know where they're going to end up. And to create a good silo structure, you kind of have to understand like where the site's going and what's going to happen. That is to say, you have to architect the site ahead of time. And what happens is things change and your plans don't turn out how you expected them to. So you end up building the structure and then you don't follow it. And then you end up with basically like 404 errors or you have to go and change a bunch of stuff. The other thing that happens is you end up with like weird and long URLs because you end up with like um, plumbing slash hot water heaters slash heating elements slash um, something, I, I don't know what else, accessories. And then you end up with like this huge long URL that actually isn't helpful. Um, one of the key things, the whole reason that I like got into siloing is um, they had this very intentional interlinking structure. And I will put a link uh, to a blog post so that you can look look at this yourself because there's a diagram that you need to look at. <laughs> but basically a silo structure has intentional linking from every um, every one of the pages has like places that it should link to. And you end up with great interlinking through your site inherently. Now, what you can do, what I arrived at is, and this is the part that I sort of put together on my own. Some people may disagree with it. Other people may um, say that, they, they agree, I guess, but you could interlink your site. So I think the huge benefit of having a silo structure is there's a map on where you should build links. But if you don't have that map, it doesn't mean you can't interlink your site. It just means you have to go and interlink your site um, wherever you want, right? So obviously it makes sense to link to things that are relevant, right? So link to the relevant stuff link to things where the audience that is reading the current article would be interested in the other article. Um, sometimes I, I actually build those links even if they wouldn't be interested. But the the idea is just interlink your site all over the place and you should be in good shape. So the summary for Marsha here is I don't necessarily advise people to build silo structures. I created a blog post that told people about how you would do this if you wanted to build a silo. I don't recommend that you do that though. Um, there's a lot of, there's actually a decent amount of content that I have created where I created it because people were asking me about it, not because I recommend it. So the sticky part of that is I don't always have a hundred percent of uh, experience to draw upon. And a lot of it is studying and then, you know, implementing it in a small way. This is one of those cases. Now I can tell you that if you go over to nichesiteproject.com and head over to the blog section, you will see a start here um, selection on the menu. If you go there and start looking around, you'll notice that is actually a silo. So I had, I moved content around multiple times. So at one point I had those as pages. I had all that content as, as uh, posts. I've had it as pages. I've had it all in one page. And then when I stepped back and I was thinking about the user, I thought, well, the easiest way for me to implement this is sort of like chapters in a book and have a hierarchy and well, that's a silo. So if you go look at that section, you'll notice that it's a silo. Additionally, if you go to niche site project, 
com slash FAQ, you'll notice that there are some pieces of a silo in that area. So if you click around, you'll see I've, I've put some in a silo and then some out of a silo. So, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure, um, if that was the best move for the FAQ section, because at some point I realized these would actually make decent blog posts, so I put them over there. But it really doesn't matter, I mean, um, as far as the URL structure in that case, because I was just trying to like answer questions that were helpful. Most of the traffic ends up getting there um, via Google anyway. So anyway, good question, Marsha. All right, and I think that concludes the full set of questions. Um, there was one person, actually, this this was a longer thread, and I wasn't sure how to uh, talk about it, but I'll just I'll read a small part of it. Hi, Doug. Um, this is from Nate, by the way. Hi, Doug. I've been following your channel for 14 months. You inspired me to buy a specific theme uh, back in the day. And the person started their site in late 2017. And then in June 2018, the site was hacked and the databases were stolen, something he never thought was possible. They didn't have a 30-day backup guarantee, and there was only one week backup, so they lost their entire uh, site when it was just beginning to make some sales. So that really sucks. And I will point out that um, having off-site backups is very important. I have heard of multiple people where there was, uh, you know, there were backups, right? There were backups by the hosting company, but they were on the same server or in the same, you know, server area as the host, right? As the, as the site. So basically if that hard drive fails or if that, if that, you know, that rack um, catches on fire and all the computers on that, all the servers on that rack are physically destroyed, you're out of luck. Um, you can't get it back. Even if they had, you know, a one year, 365 days backup and they had, you know, hourly backups for you. If the hard drive fails or something happens on that physical machine, there's nothing you can do about it. So, Luckily, that has not happened to me. I've had some small issues with, um, you know, backups and sites going down. But ever since a friend of mine had, um, I think he had a VPS, a virtual private server, where he was, he was a web developer, so he was hosting all his client sites. His site went down. Um, his server went down. Physical issue, unrecoverable. No offsite backups, and he was um, in rough shape. He never got it back. He never recovered. And I think he had to rebuild the client sites from um, pulling from uh, like uh, the web archive, the Wayback Machine, that is. So anyway, that said, um, if you have a good host, they're going to be able to help you out um, a little bit more with technical stuff um, and do a little bit better as far as um, having offsite backups. Sometimes that is part of it. Um, depending on the hosting package that you have with the hosting company. Um, I use SiteGround primarily, and I also use MDD hosting. I'm an affiliate for both of those, so if you actually like signed up through my link or anything, I'd get a commission, which I appreciate. But those are my two hosts. Um, I do separate um, sites, and you know, if, if one hosting company has something bad happen, at least it's not all my sites. Um, and I've worked with probably four other hosting companies as well. And these are the, you know, the two that I really like. Okay. Uh, further, Nate says two months ago, I relaunched my site and I came across the keyword golden ratio and he's trying it out. And I was going to say, there's a longer thread here. And basically Nate was telling me it is working out. He published like 50 articles. And at least the last time I caught up with him, it was something like 50, uh, 50 plus dollars per month. And actually, let me find the email because I, I just realized that I, I was like, yeah, he did 50. Uh, he had 50 articles and 50 bucks a month. Let me see if I could find this. Let me hit pause here. All right. Yeah, I'm back. So the thread is actually interesting because it goes through. Um, a little bit of a timeline. So it's been a little while since Nate emailed me, but um, Nate did follow up and says, um, I've stayed um, 
I've stayed all these months really without knowing what the KGR is. 24 months, sorry, 24 hours ago, I got it. So apparently Nate was like, the KGR is great. I'm going to give it a shot, but he didn't get it. So Nate said he spent the night going back to KGR post uh, from about two months and there were 50 articles. Yes. Um, and he's tweaking the content. So he had to tweak the content of his existing post so that it was actually following the KGR because he didn't really get it before. And then he wanted to know if it was okay to publish 50 articles. Um, if it's okay, sorry, I don't think English was, is his first language. So there's some, there's some missing words, um, and just some issues here. So I'm, I'm having a hard time reading it. Okay. It says, is it okay to make the 50 published articles KGR compliant by using the Yoast plugin? And I told him, sure, you could do whatever you want. Why would that be an issue? Um, and I also mentioned it's normal to have a post ranking in two, two months. And I also advise Nate to ask questions via YouTube so other people can benefit from it too. And, um, yeah, I get a lot of emails. So, um, what, what I end up doing sometimes I can't reply to all of them. I try, I really try to, but there's just so many damn emails, um, and what I do, what, what I try to do since some people you know, can't ask via YouTube, for example, um, I'll put them on a forum like this, right? I put them on a podcast on a YouTube video and then many more people could benefit. So here's the deal. Uh, in February, early February, Nate said, I wanted to give you an update. It's been four months since he revamped the articles. And he said in December, he made $27. And then in January, he made 200 and it was early February and he made $55 in the first week. And, um, yeah, so that's awesome. And I will try and catch up because it's been about another, you know, six plus weeks since I got the update. And I'm really curious to hear if Nate has been able to keep it up. Maybe I will, uh, get him on YouTube to do an interview or at least, uh, you know, some other kind of interview. So, or at least more information. All right. I think that's it. And, uh, thanks a lot for joining. Do me a favor, tell other people about the show. I would really appreciate it and see you later. All right. Thanks a lot for joining me on The Doug Show. I really do appreciate you taking the time. If you're not subscribed, please consider subscribing. I have a ton of other episodes out there covering lots of different topics. Sometimes I just tell stories. If you are a longtime listener, I appreciate you too. If you haven't left a review, that is awesome because now you have an opportunity to leave a review and that would be totally cool and I would really appreciate it. If you're looking to get started with affiliate marketing or making money online or anything like that, you should go over to nichesiteproject.com. That is my blog. Once you're over there, you just click the green button, enter your name and email address, and then I'll send you a bunch of cool stuff. I'll send you templates, some motivational emails, and I think there's probably just some random emails that I send out there also. So we'll catch you next time on The Doug Show. Thanks. Thanks.